Welcome to the Marion Road Christian Church Podcast. Marion Road exists to glorify God through worship, sharing the good news, making and developing disciples, and serving others. We're uh, going to be in Luke chapter 15 today. If you uh, have a Bible and want to open it up for there, open it up to there, or the words will be up on the screen here once uh, we start reading the text here in a few moments. My guess is that if you have uh, been around church for really any length of time, you have come across Luke chapter 15 at some point or another, this chapter, uh, that contains three stories, and the third of which is typically referred to as the parable of the prodigal son. Charles Dickens once said that the parable of the prodigal son is the greatest short story that has ever been told. And as great as that is, and we will get to it in due time, there is so much more going on in this chapter than just this one story. For one, as I've already said, there there are three stories contained in this chapter, and they are all three stories that are uh, building off of one another and stories that are in direct response to the situation that Jesus is in uh, at the beginning of Luke chapter 15. And so just jumping to the third of those stories drains a little bit of the significance of what is going on in this chapter as a whole. And maybe more than that, when we just call Luke chapter 15 the chapter where we hear about the prodigal son, we we miss a little bit even about what is going on in that third story. Because as we'll see this morning, the, the parable of the prodigal son is not about one son, it is about two. And so if we just focus on the first one, We miss the point of what Jesus is getting at in this chapter. So it's worth zooming out and looking at Luke chapter 15 as one whole so we can get our arms around what Jesus is wanting us to see in this text. But maybe before we do that, it's worth taking a step back and thinking about what that word prodigal even means. Because I don't know about you, but I thought about it this week, and I cannot recall the last time I heard the word prodigal used when Luke chapter 15 was not being discussed. And if you were to look for a definition of that word, one of the words you would come across, or a phrase you would come across for a definition for that word, I should say, is the phrase, wastefully extravagant. Wastefully extravagant. And I don't know if that phrase brings an image to mind for you. Maybe it it brings to mind something that is just over the top and unnecessary, like I I probably shouldn't give any examples because I'll just sound like I hate all fun, but but something like that might come to mind for you. And that is how one character within Luke chapter 15 is typically described. And I don't have a problem with that. I don't think it's inaccurate necessarily, but I do think that if we read Luke chapter 15 as a whole, all the words of Jesus in this chapter, we find these these traits, we find the idea of being prodigal coming about just, just maybe not in the place we would normally expect it. So let's look at this chapter as a whole. I want to read first for us Luke 15, verses 3 to 7. It says, Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I I found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need 
to repent. In Jesus' day, a hundred sheep would be a pretty average-sized flock, and a shepherd who was with a flock, even a flock of that size, day after day, would know pretty well all of the sheep individually and would know if one had gone missing. So if a shepherd were to discover that they had lost one of their 100 sheep, it would make sense that they would both be able to recognize that and then that they would leave the flock, presumably with other shepherds, although Jesus doesn't say that explicitly, and go out looking for the one that was lost. Maybe it's gotten hurt, it's injured a leg and can't walk anymore. Maybe it's been attacked by predators. Maybe it's just stuck in a hole or something and can't get itself out. But regardless, Jesus says a good shepherd will go searching for the sheep that wanders away. And given the love for that sheep, given the amount of time invested in the search, given the concern and everything that goes on, given the value that is regained if you find one sheep that is lost, the shepherd makes sense that he would be overjoyed once he finds it. Maybe he puts the sheep on, the shoulder, on his shoulders and carries it home, as Jesus says here, because you know, the, the sheep's injured and can't carry itself anymore. Or maybe he's just so excited, so glad to have the sheep back, he doesn't want it out of his sight, and so he puts it on his shoulders and carries it home. And this story has a happy ending. And yet it's at this point where the story maybe starts to go a little overboard because Jesus says that the shepherd calls his friends and neighbors and invites them to celebrate with him because he has found his sheep. I mean, I understand why the shepherd is excited that he's found the sheep that he's lost, but does he really expect that his friends, his neighbors, would be as excited as he is for this sheep that was lost and was found? A few months ago, Whitney and I drove past a field that belonged to Rodney Allen, and, and there was a fence down and some of the cows were out, and so we called Rodney and told him what was going on, and a couple hours later, every, we drove back through and everything was fixed. But Rodney didn't call me later that day and say, hey, just want you to know, we got all the cows back in, and we're so excited, we're so happy about it, we didn't lose any cows, we're throwing a party, tell your friends, tell everyone, come over to the house so we can celebrate. Maybe he did throw a party and he didn't invite me because I didn't offer to help. I don't know, actually, now that I think about it. I can't confirm that, but the point remains. It seems a little over the top to throw a party for something like this. I mean, it's not that this isn't significant. It's not that this isn't something worth celebrating. It just seems like doing something to that extent seems a little, I don't know, prodigal, a little wastefully extravagant. And yet Jesus tells this story and says that this is how heaven reacts when one person who is far from God comes near. Like a shepherd celebrating the return of one lost sheep, even though he already had 99 No matter how many people are already a part of Jesus' kingdom, there is a party for every single person that comes home. Our God calls each of us home and celebrates when we've come back. Jesus continues with the second story, continuing from verse 8. Jesus says, Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I I found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. There's obviously uh, some sort of significance attached to these ten silver coins Jesus describes here, although he doesn't 
fully explain for us what that significance might be. Some scholars speculate that these coins would have been this woman's dowry given to her when she was married, and that could be the case, although we don't know for sure. But what we can tell, based on what Jesus says here, it sure seems like this woman has ten silver coins and not a whole lot else. So to lose one coin out of ten is almost like losing a tenth of her net worth, and for that reason, she goes to great lengths to find it. I mean, this isn't digging through the couch for the remote. She turns her house upside down to find this coin. Most homes in Jesus' day would have little to no windows, so even during the day, you're not getting a great deal of natural light into the house. So if you really want to be able to search carefully for something, you need to light a lamp. You need to look closely if you're ever going to be able to find it. And she searches high and low everywhere imaginable until this coin is found. A couple months ago when I went to camp, the morning we left for camp, someone from the church came to me and handed me some cash and said, here, take this. This is for when you make your first stop and some kid realizes they forgot their money. So we get to St. Cloud. And we get out of the van and a kid realizes that they don't have their money. And I won't say which kid it is, but I will say that this news was really stressing Nolan O'Neill out. And so, all his siblings were already pointing at him over here, so it's okay. Uh, and if I'm being totally honest, I was not as sympathetic as I should have been because I was just trying to get to camp in one piece. And so I was like, look, I got money here. I'll just buy your lunch. It's got to be here somewhere. You had it this morning. We'll get to camp. We'll unpack everything. It'll be fine. So we get to camp, everything gets unpacked, out of the trailer and everything else, and still no wallet. So we do some more searching, we turn the van upside down, can't find it anywhere, look through everyone's suitcases, no wallet, nothing. I said, well, I, it's slipped into a black hole or something, I guess. We'll, we'll just do as best we can. So I let his, Sean and Carrie know, we got through the week, fine, and, and it was all well and good. We get back to the church on Saturday, we unpack the van and the trailer and everything. We get everyone unloaded and still no wallet. So Sean opens up the back door of the wallet and after about 10 seconds of searching, the wallet was found. And like this parable, there was much rejoicing. But again, there wasn't a party. And it doesn't really seem to make a whole lot of sense to celebrate in this story Jesus tells. I mean, when you've been desperately searching for something of value because you have so little of it, I'm not sure it makes sense to throw a party that it's been found. I understand being excited and relieved and all of those emotions, but a party seems wasteful, maybe even prodigal. And yet Jesus says that this is a portrait of who our God is. He says God is like a woman turning her house upside down, trying to find something valuable that was lost, and celebrating once it has been found. God is calling each of us home, and will go to incredible lengths in pursuit of someone who is far from him. And that sets the stage for this final story. Picking up in verse 11, it says, Jesus continued. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son set, got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields 
to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have, come to, have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on and put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. There's a lot here that we might skip over because we've heard this story before or because uh, we don't understand Jesus' culture, but they are essential for us to get our arms around this story. For a son to ask his father for his inheritance early was unthinkable in Jesus' day. The son essentially says he wants his inheritance more than he wants a relationship with his father, and he is sick of sitting around and waiting for his father to drop dead so that he can have it. Anyone from Jesus' day listening to this story would expect the next line to be something to the effect of, and so the father beat the tar out of his son for having the nerve to say something like that. I don't know if Minnesotans beat the tar out of things, but Missourians do, so just, you know, work with me. And yet that's not what happens. The father divides his estate between his two sons, which means the younger one, the one asking for this, gets one-third of everything he owns. which is maybe as shocking as the words of the younger son to start all of this. And the younger son immediately liquidates all his assets and he sets off for a foreign country. And apparently things go well for him for a while. Apparently he's living the high life, but one day the money dries up and around that same time a severe famine hits the land and the fun is over. And things get so desperate that his only option is to work in the fields feeding pigs. And for a Jewish person, working with pigs would be absolutely reprehensible. Pigs are ceremonially unclean. No self-respecting Jewish person in Jesus' day even goes near pigs, much less touch them, much less be working among them. But if you notice here, it's not just that the younger son is working among the pigs, it's that he is envious of them. He looks at the slop he's feeding them every day and thinks, boy, they're eating better than I am right now. And it's somewhere in there that he realizes that the servants in his father's house are better off than he is. And so he decides he should go home and ask his father if he can be his servant. Now Jesus doesn't say what the son's motives are at this point. Maybe he's genuine, maybe he's remorseful, maybe he's cynical and he knows dad's a big softy and he'll get back in for free. We don't know, but regardless, he starts making the journey back home and he starts putting together a speech. 
And you can imagine rehearsing that speech on the walk home and the time that gives for self-respect, self-reflection. You can picture him as he walks, thinking it through in his head, saying, Father, I've, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Would you welcome me back in? Would you let me come and be one of your servants? Father, I've, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Would, would you maybe let me come and be one of your servants? Could I maybe come home? Speeches this significant get rehearsed and bring with them plenty of time for reflection. When I was trying to think through how I was going to ask Whitney out for the first time, I spent at least a full day trying to think through what that was going to look like and every word that would be said. That speech got rehearsed far more than anything I've ever said on this stage has been rehearsed. (laughs) But it felt significant. It felt like something where every detail needed to be exactly right, and the son here as he travels home is going through something very similar. As he gets closer to home, you can imagine his heart racing, thinking through what he's going to say, wondering how it's going to be received. Jesus says that while he is still a long way off, his father sees him. Maybe he was looking for him. Maybe he's been looking for him for a very long time. And as soon as the father realizes who is coming up the driveway, he is filled with compassion. He has that same feeling we saw a few weeks ago that the good Samaritan had towards the man who had been left for dead in the ditch. And he runs towards him. In Jesus' day, older men did not run. For someone who was dignified and honored and respected in the community, it was thought to be demeaning for them to be seen running in public. So the next time your doctor tells you to exercise, you can try telling them that you're just a dignified person. You don't think you should have to do that. Just don't tell them you got that from me, I guess. But, but that's just a thought. That's for free. You can think about that later. But regardless of social convention, this father runs towards his son. The son who told him to drop dead and then ran away, taking his share of the family riches with him, which he promptly squandered. Again, if we're listening to Jesus tell this story in his day, we're probably expecting the next sentence to be something along the lines of, and the father smacked his son across the face for having the nerve to show his face on their property again after what he had done. But instead... Father throws his arms around his son and kisses him and welcomes him back home. The son starts in on his speech, but if you notice, he only gets through the first half of what he had prepared before the father cuts him off. He doesn't care about the circumstances. He doesn't even care if the son feels bad about what he has done. He is simply overjoyed that his son has come home. There's no time for apologies because it's time to throw a party. He calls for the best robe to, out of the closet to replace these rags covered in pig slop. He calls for a ring to be put on his dirty finger. He calls for fresh sandals to be put on these feet tired from the journey. 
And with those three things, he demonstrates right away that this younger son has been immediately accepted back into the family, has been automatically restored to the status he had before, and he calls for the fatted calf to be killed. He says the biggest feast of the year has to be thrown right now because the son who was lost has returned home. Jesus says that God is like a father, welcoming in a rebellious son, honoring him when he deserves to be shamed. God is calling us home, and he throws a party when we get there. Now, if we're hearing this story in light of the first two stories, we would expect things to end right here. I mean, something was lost, and then it was found. The person who was looking for the thing that was lost finds it, and then they're excited, and they celebrate. But that's not what Jesus does. Because if you remember the beginning of this story, one of the first things Jesus said was that this father had two sons. And so the second half of the story has to do with the older son. And this is what we miss if we just call this the parable of the prodigal son. Because the story is not about one lost son, but about two. And the rest of this chapter has to do with the second one. Picking up in verse 25, Jesus says, meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him, what was going on? Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, look, All these years, I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for it. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The older brother comes in, I'm sure, tired from a long day of work and for some reason hears a party going on. So he asks what is happening. A servant tells him that the party to end all parties is being thrown because his younger brother has come home. And with everyone around him celebrating, he throws a fit and refuses to go inside. And so for the second time in this story, the father sees one of his sons who is lost, and he goes out to him. The older brother does not greet his father with repentance, remorse. The father doesn't find joy when he gets out to his other son. Instead, he finds anger. I mean, the older brother loses it on his father because in his mind, this isn't fair. His younger brother was out bringing shame on the family, doing who knows what, who knows where, and that whole time he had stayed at home. And now he's getting nothing for it. All that work, all that obedience, it is for nothing. If I could try to translate what he says here in terms of Rochester in 2022, he says something to the effect of, you're having Victoria's cater this party for my younger brother, and you've never even bought me Culver's. No offense to Culver's, that's where I'm eating lunch today. I'm just 
trying to draw a contrast. In his mind, he has earned the celebration and honor of the father, but instead it's going to his younger brother who in his mind does not deserve it. Notice in verse 30, he says, This son of yours has squandered your property with prostitutes. Notice he says, your son. He does not say, my brother. And not only that, notice he has no evidence for this accusation he makes. There's nothing in the story up to this point that tells us that the younger brother has committed any kind of sexual sins, and yet the older brother assumes that he has. In his mind, in the mind of the older brother, there is absolutely no good reason why his brother should ever be welcomed back home. And it's right here where the older brother reveals he has misunderstood his father just as badly as his younger brother has. He has been in the presence of his good and loving father this entire time and has misunderstood where that goodness and love has come from. It has not come because the older brother had a better work ethic and was more obedient and had this long list of achievements that he could point to. It has come simply because of who the father is. The father was overjoyed to have the older brother in his presence this entire time, and he is overjoyed now to have the younger brother back as well, and he wants his older son to see that. If you notice in verse 32, the father says to the older brother, this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. The older brother called him your son. The father calls him your brother. And the father welcomes them both home, not because of what they've done, but because of who he is. And the older brother is unable to see how it is possible for the father to love and accept both of them equally. Accepting the younger brother in spite of all he has done is in his mind a rejection of all the good that he has accomplished. And then if you notice, the story ends. We're left wondering how the older brother responds. Does he understand the love that the father has for both of his sons? Does he go in and enjoy the party or does he stay outside? I mean, what happens to this family? What do things look like after the party's over tomorrow morning and they have to figure out how to live together again? What do things look like a year from now? What do they look like five years from now? What do they look like after dad dies and the older brother is now in charge of everything? I mean, do they find peace and reconciliation with one another? Is there just awkward tension between them for the rest of their lives? Does the younger brother actually change or does he hang around for a little while and then decide that he's had enough and run off to a foreign land again? We don't know. Jesus doesn't tell us. And as much as we might like to expect, might like to speculate, that probably means that before we do anything else, Jesus wants us to think about this story in light of our own stories. Because Jesus tells this story to real people, calling them to experience who God is. And as he does that, there are some who might seem lost, who have come to know the Father, and some who think they are found, who might in fact be lost, even if they are in the Father's home. If you're wondering why I've skipped over the first two verses of this chapter, I want to read them now because they are absolutely essential 
if we're going to understand the point Jesus is making. This chapter begins in verses 1 and 2 by telling us, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Jesus is speaking to these two groups of people simultaneously. On the one hand, he has tax collectors and sinners, the people who, because of their background, their occupation, their past actions, they are looked down upon. They are the people who have wandered off into a faraway country. And on the other hand, he has the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the religious elite, the people who think they have all the answers, the people who have stayed in the Father's house and looked down on those who have gone off to a foreign land. If you were here last week and remember how the passage we looked at last week at the end of Luke chapter 14 ended, the very last thing Jesus says in Luke 14 is whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. And then if we keep reading, we start Luke chapter 15, the very next verse, Luke tells us that tax collectors and sinners are gathering around to hear Jesus. Same word. The outcasts of society, the younger brothers, they are paying attention. They are responding to this call to follow Jesus. And as that is happening, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are offended because in their mind, they should be celebrated. They should have the fattened calf kill for them. And their offense at who Jesus is and what he is doing shows that they have missed who our God is. They're the older brother. Standing outside the party, arms crossed, frustrated, the father would be willing to love the younger brother. And we often have a hard time trying to reconcile how God could love both older and younger brothers. Typically, we think he can only love one or the other, and typically, in my experience, we think he can only love the one that we most identify with. God either loves younger brothers just excited to have an excuse to throw a party anytime anyone comes home, no matter what they've done, or he loves older brothers. Those who achieve, he expects good things, high standards, and he only celebrates the best of the best and those who achieve those things. And yet Jesus tells us these three stories in Luke chapter 15 to point to a crowd of both older and younger brothers, to point to a crowd like us and tell us that God loves both. If a younger brother, if it's a younger brother coming home from a faraway country or an older brother coming in from the front yard, our God loves both and is wastefully extravagant in the celebration he throws for them. If I can borrow from the title of a book by Timothy Keller, our, book, our God is a prodigal God. Our God searches for what is lost, calls us back home, and celebrates when something that was lost is found, when something that was dead is brought back to life. So instead of wondering about how this story ends for this father and two sons, we have to think about how it will end for us. To the younger brothers listening to me right now, the father is waiting for you to come home. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how far you've run away, how much of the inheritance you've squandered. The father wants you to come home clothe you, to put a ring on your finger, to put shoes on your feet, and throw a party. So don't settle for living in the pig slop when the Father wants to celebrate. 
if you've never followed Jesus in the past, or if you've wandered wandered away and wonder if there's any way for you to be welcomed back home, know that the Father is watching and is waiting for you. And to the older brothers listening to me this morning, know that the Father comes out to you as well. He has just as much love for you as he does for the younger brother, and that love is not tied up in what you have accomplished. It is tied up in who the Father is. So don't settle for trying to earn the Father's love when you already have it. Don't stand outside the party when the Father wants you to come in because it is your party as well. The Father wants you just as much as he wants your brother, so come, enjoy what is in store. No matter who you are, if nothing else, come and enjoy the celebration. If you have a decision to make, Jesus makes it clear in this chapter that heaven is waiting to throw a party for you. If you have already made a decision, remember the love of the Father who is wastefully extravagant when he throws a party. And may we all come together in celebration because of our Father who calls each and every one of us home. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your goodness, your faithfulness, your grace towards us. Love that we don't deserve. Acceptance we have not earned. Goodness and faithfulness when we have done just the opposite. Father, help us respond well to what your word says here. For those of us who have never known you or have in the past but have ran away, Father, help us come home. Help us know who you are and what you are waiting to do for us once we get there. Father, for those of us out in the fields, for those of us out in the front yard throwing a fit, help us see your goodness revealed to us and to our brothers. That we have not earned your love, your acceptance, your favor. We simply have it because of who you are. And may we all join together as one family to enjoy who you are and celebrate and praise you. It is all because of Jesus that any of this is possible. And it's in his name that I pray. Amen. We hope that you are encouraged and challenged by this message given by our own senior pastor, Monty French. 